Hello, welcome to our bonus episode for Dark Stories from the Campfire. I hope you have been enjoying our series, The Strange Case of Florence Winterfeld, which will resume next week. However, today's story is about an inmate who wakes up to find themselves sharing a cell with a stranger. For today's dark story, we present to you, The Duel. I thought it was but a dream when I awoke one morning to see him huddled in the corner, head tucked between his legs, wearing a tattered green coat and whimpering. Though I instantly knew this not to be the case, that the huddled figure was as real as you, me, this lamp, and the table in front of us. My second thought was that the new inmate had been assigned to my cell late in the night, and my new acquaintance, overcome with the sudden realization of his present circumstances, had fallen into despair, making his space in the corner. I left him alone, and as such went about my morning ritual, of pulling the pan I placed outside the window to catch the evening rain, so I could wash myself as best I could and straighten my clothes that had begun to show signs of wear, which is to be expected after six months of continuously hanging from my body. Shortly after the church bell rung seven, the small latch on the door opened, and a plate of food was slid into the room. But just one. Was I to share? Maybe they had forgotten about the new inmate. That sort of torture isn't beneath the guards, you see, and they will undoubtedly use any tactic to their advantage. Perhaps my new acquaintance was being uncooperative, much like I had been when I was first arrested and placed in the cell, and thus was being punished. Either way, not an inch did he move, nor respond in any way. Sometime in the afternoon, I had begun to grow concerned about my new companion, and attempted to talk with him, to conjure some bit of information. Verily, this was all in vain, for despite my constant questions, the person huddled in the corner remained motionless. I soon dropped the inquiry and took up my usual practice of pacing around and getting lost in my own thoughts. Though, rather than my regular imaginary conversations, separated by intervals of self-doubt, my thoughts focused on the new cellmate, and I found myself constantly looking over at him, observing, wondering, time and again if he had moved, or if it was merely an internal wish on my part that he had. He had not, however. Hour upon hour he remained huddled, weeping. The sun was beginning to set when the latch on the door opened once more to delivery, yet again, a single tray of food. I flew instantly to the door, crying out, what about my new companion? Does he not get food as I do? From the other side of the door, I could hear a guard answer back, what companion? Ain't nobody in there but you. Then a second voice from another guard saying, I think our friend the lieutenant is finally beginning to crack. I could hear the receding of footsteps, along with the laughter from the guards fade from the door. I turned to face the huddled figure in the corner, who continued to remain motionless. However, the weeping had stopped. I sat for several hours studying my new cellmate, listening to any sound he might make, watching closely for any movement. At length I approached him and calmly urged him to reveal something about himself or what had brought him to his present situation, mainly here with me. Who had brought him in if the guards were unaware of his presence? Or were they? To this end, I let out a great sigh and chuckled to myself. A trick, I told myself. A fantastical illusion, a new method of torture. I prided myself on this revelation and made my way back to my section of the cell. Content with this knowledge, I slumped against the wall. Thinking now that I have discovered that little ruse, the huddled figure would leave in the night, 
returning me to my solitude. And yet, when I woke the next morning, the figure in the corner remained, and in the same exact spot as the night prior, and again was weeping. I impatiently waited for the latch to open, delivering our morning meal, and I almost cried out in shock and panic when, once again, only a single tray was slid in. It was then, as I stood dumbfounded by the tray, I heard a soft laugh from the figure in the corner before resuming his weeping. That is how it was for the remainder of the day. As the day gave way to night, the creeping moonlight settled upon the figure huddled in the corner. I dared not sleep, nor take my eyes off the figure all night, for fear of not only who he might be, but also what he could do. And as the light began to drift from the corner of the room to the middle, the figure, who had been motionless for the last two days, began to move. Using the wall behind him, the figure raised himself up, The audible popping and cracking of joints and bone filled the cell, and a great yell emanated from his mouth. I watched all this in horror and pushed myself deeper into the wall, hoping that whatever was uncurling itself before me would show mercy and leave me without paying any attention. To my dismay, this was not to be the case, for after standing for a few moments, the figure turned to me and whispered, Murderer! There was only a sliver of moonlight left that covered the corner, but it was that sliver that revealed the face I had seen before that I knew all too well. At one time, I was a personal secretary to General Woodland, who, by reputation, was a difficult person to engage with. Short-tempered and direct, the general was both heavily respected and hated. And not a week went by that one would find articles not only filled with adulation for his military prowess, but also pieces filled with slander, reporting all sorts of scandalous behavior, whether true or not. The general, of course, gave as good as he received, and this constant back and forth would lead to a variety of confrontations, including his last one. One night, as we were exiting the theater, one of the general's critics, who had also attended the play that night with his wife, happened to notice him and hurled a rather inappropriate insult his way in front of a crowded people. The general turned, quickly looked over the couple, and returned the favor to his opponent's wife. This, of course, led the husband flying into a rage, and it took half a dozen onlookers to subdue him. Eventually, the temper subsided and the general's critic walked off in a huff. The following morning, a note was delivered from the gentleman of the prior night, detailing the encounter and demanding an apology for the slight to his reputation and the embarrassment his wife had to endure, for if not, they would seek restoration of their honor in another way. The general laughed it off and sent off his response for refusing to apologize for anything and to add insult to injury and closed a reference to a rather private matter within the note. The following day, another note was delivered, this time demanding the general's presence at Wayward Field in one week's time that any further contact must go through his friend, Mr. Willis. I was sent to speak with this Mr. Willis, not because the general wanted to avoid the duel, but because he had a prior engagement that he deemed more important and wanted to move the date back by a few days. An appointment was scheduled, and later that afternoon I made my way over to Mr. Willis's household, only to be surprised once I had arrived that I not only knew him, but we were in the same class in the university. We were not close, I would say, nor would I describe our relationship as friendly. We were rivals in many aspects of school life, 
foreseeing we were constantly pitted against each other. And while I had put most of this out of my mind, for this was many years ago, I was saddened to find out Mr. Willis had not, and reminded me as such as he refused my request to move the date. In good faith, I attempted to reason with him, only to be once again shot down, laughed at, and asked to leave. The whole walk back to the general's house, I grew angrier as I replayed the conversation again and again. I informed the general, who only nodded and said to make the proper arrangements. A week later, five of us stood at Wayward Field at dawn, four being the general and myself, the critic and Mr. Willis, the fifth a mutual acquaintance who was in charge of the pistols. As things were being set up, the mutual acquaintance came over to speak with us, to beg us not to proceed. And though we only had our backs turned for a moment, it was then Mr. Willis secreted over to the pistol box and tampered with one of them. I noticed this out of the corner of my eye briefly as he lowered the lid and walked back over to his companion. I tried to protest, to warn them of what I saw. Of course, Mr. Willis denied everything, insisting that he was merely appreciating the box for his craftsmanship. I knew he was lying, but the general pulled me aside, telling me to steal my nerves. I obeyed, and in silence I watched as each selected their pistol and took the required spaces. The general had drawn first. After centering himself and carefully aiming, he tugged at the trigger only for nothing to happen. He pulled down harder the second time and finally the weapon discharged, setting the bullet high above his opponent's head and into the trees behind him. While the general may have missed, his rival obviously did not. That was only a few feet away when the shell ripped through the general's chest, exiting his left side. For a moment, his opponent and Mr. Willis stood there frozen, before dropping the pistol and running off towards their carriage. The general was dead as soon as he hit the ground. That night in my apartment, as the general's body was being processed in the moor, I sat with the pistol, for I refused to allow our acquaintance to retrieve it, cleaning and looking at it. The trigger had been manipulated, I was sure of that, no doubt could be made. But what course of action should I take? Presently I tucked the weapon into my green jacket and walked out into the street. What plans do you think I had? You are wrong, for I had none. A form of delirium, they tell me, for I wandered for I don't know how long. Though I remember the street being foggy, and the light from the street lamps getting caught in the mist giving everything a dream-like feel. I continued to wander still until I found myself facing Mr. Willis's home. I stood there for some time, not knowing what to do. Then, on the quiet street behind me, I heard the clacking of horses and a carriage. Quickly, almost instinctively, I absconded to a dark corner near the fence line, pressing myself deep within and held my breath. I heard the carriage stop, the driver open the door, then watched Mr. Willis make his way up the front walk to his front door. No notice did he give me, not even when I let out a small cough. No, none at all. It was then I determined to seek justice for the general. I spent the following two nights hiding in the shadows, and I noticed that if I hunched down I could avoid detection even further, not only from the house, but by anyone passing by on the street. Of course, the fog helped aid in my invisibility, as it was so thick the moonlight barely penetrated it. For hours I watched and waited from the shadows. 
It was so easy, so entirely simple, that in my arrogance I let out a soft laugh at one point while Mr. Willis was entering his home. He stopped for the briefest of seconds, looked around, and continued on. And it was during these times, in between observations, I grieved for my friend, the General. It was late into the second night that my hiding spot would be exposed and my presence detected, for the fog was clearing and the moonlight was now shining through. And it was while Mr. Willis was returning to his house after walking out a guest that he saw me in a sliver of moonlight and stood frozen. Without missing a beat, I quickly rose, produced the pistol from my jacket and cried murderer as I pulled the trigger, releasing the shell into Mr. Willis. The street then laid silent. The figure from the corner of the cell stood above me as I begged for mercy, confessing all that I had done and hoping I would be forgiven. However, none of this happened. The figure stepped around me, walked to the door, knocked twice and waited for the door to open. When it did, the figure vanished into the hall and a few minutes later a guard walked in saying, we heard it all. I guess you are ready to talk after six months. And that is why I'm here, sitting with you at this table, under this lamp. I guess this is it for me. Really, I shouldn't be surprised at how all this ended. I should have known once I saw the figure. But, alas, it is time for me to go, so I bid you goodbye. Wait, what is that? Well, I don't really know. I suppose I will be led to my death, never knowing whether or not the figure in my cell was real, a result of isolation. If you could find out, it would be greatly appreciated. They never will let me know.